Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. Now, the conversation on today's pod is so rich, it had to be a two-parter. The guest in question is one of life's great learners, Craig White. My journey in that realm, which never stops, it came from a void. The only regret I've got in Wales, Ben, was that I spent two years trying to get rid of um, the physios. And one of them in particular is a wonderful man. The coaching staff are saying to me, Craig, are you sure about this? This group of players, this culture, I don't think they're going to open up. You might be disappointed. I don't think I've had a successful career because of my brains. I think I've had a successful career because of my character. Craig's credentials in rugby are impeccable. Roles at Wasps, Ireland, Wales, the British and Irish Lions, as well as his journey with the Uruguayan team at the last Rugby World Cup, fill his CV. Now, he started in strength and conditioning, but he has added so much more at places like Bolton Wanderers Football Club, where he acted as a consultant to manager Sam Allardyce. Now, relating to the Bolton part of his life, there is some swearing in this section of the podcast. We don't usually include swearing, as we know the podcast is consumed by listeners of all ages. But in this instance, we felt it added value and was essential to one of the funniest stories in the programme. So we hope you don't mind too much. Part one is mainly about Craig's journey, and we touch on subjects like pain, character, rapport, feedback, and serving people. Whilst in part two, we go deeper into some of the specific tools and techniques he uses. But we start with his upbringing and how that informed his path from an early age. I mean, it never ends, does it? You think you've been on a journey and then something else happens. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I was raised by a family that didn't seem to appreciate the journey of life and the changes of life. And they built a box around them in a safe environment and the TV. And we do that on a Tuesday and a Monday and that's life. And I just rebelled against that, really. I mean, I've got a lot to thank my mum my and dad for. You know what I mean? A lot. One of the things I do thank my dad for, though, is actually modelling a way of living that I didn't resonate with. And I wanted to look at the opposite of that. So I guess I, have, I guess I was quite rebellious early on in terms of moving away from the rules of mum and dad and looking for something else. I think life is, is constantly wanting us to change and evolve. And, you know, we, we think we've changed and we go through a period of harmony and being settled. And then there's another itch, there's another knock on the door and it's constantly life asking us to continually evolve. And so I've leaned into that and, and, and I see it as a never ending kind of journey of life, really. I'll, I'll never think that the life I have now is exactly the way it's supposed to be and the way it's going to be for the next next 50 years. I'm open to change, really. For your journey then, if, if I kind of pick it up, because I'm going to bounce around a bit, but at 16, one of the things that I, that, that I look at is self-awareness is pretty central to a lot of the stuff that you're doing now. And you had self-awareness early on to say to yourself, I'm not going to make it as a professional rugby league player at the level that you wanted to play. Did that mean that that kind of that ability to be self-aware, is that a super strength that you've always had? I mean, what is self-awareness? You know, it's a big question, isn't it? Um, no, I, no, actually, I don't think it is, Ben, actually. Now I'm, I'm contemplating that question. I don't think it is. Um, I think as a young man, myself and and, and all of us, you know, we're, we're given a set of rules and we're, and we're, we're pushed towards a certain way of living by mum, dad and influential people around us and 
for me growing up in Wigan and going to rugby league schools and being close to a rugby league amateur team and and watching rugby league always on TV with my mum and dad and sport, it was like, well, based on the information coming into me as a child on how to be in the world, it's about sport. You know, that's life. That's my world. That That is what I thought everybody does. Everybody plays sport. And so I don't think I had a level of self-awareness. I think I was just given a set of rail tracks that guided me towards becoming a professional rugby league player. My mum and dad did everything in the power to make that happen. So I was just vroom. And I'd got the commitment side and the drive from my mum. I didn't really do that well in school academically, to be honest, Ben. I just, not because I wasn't intelligent, I just couldn't be asked. I just thought, well, what's the point? I'm going to be a professional rugby league player. So there was no self-awareness there. It was just like, this is the track I'm going on. And I'm going to go for it. So my highest value or my highest driver was being a professional rugby league player. And, you know, as I got into my teenage, you know, there was other drivers that came into my life, like girls. I wanted to connect with girls. That was a, num- a number two driver, maybe. And the number three driver was health. I got into health a lot. And um, and life is good when you kind of drivers are all linked together. Like Life is in, in harmony. But then I realised that I wasn't going to be a professional rugby league player. And, um, and I realised that other things were coming into my life. There's a potential of being a PE teacher going to university. And, um, you know, something inside of me knew that not that there's anything wrong with, with playing amateur rugby league and not that there's anything wrong with playing professional at a lower level, but I knew there was something bigger for me in life than signing for Lee as a 22-year-old for... A grand and a half and a pair of uh, boots, you know, which which could have happened. And um, something was was pulling me away from that. And then I kind of got lost for a couple of years, you know, on the social scene and recreational drugs and things like that. But that also opened me up to a, a bigger version of myself and learned me to feel and to appreciate love more. And then I realised I had to stop playing rugby because um, I was I was doing a bit of work on the side with a, with a. A professional, a rugby union team, Waterloo, as a trainer. You know, I was I was a, a a fitness trainer with Waterloo two days a week, and I thought, wow, there's a career in this. And um, and and I, I went to university and uh, went down the route of becoming an SNC coach. So when you were on that journey and you were moving away from professional, the professional ambitions at the highest level, and then into kind of that, just like working out what's next, really. Was there anything that any one moment in particular, like I, the reason I say this is, and I, I don't know, I, I look a little bit about um, Paolo Coelho uh, and The Alchemist, and the and that was a brilliant book. It's a lovely story, simple story, and he always talks about when you're about to do a new something new and something that could be really difficult. You get that. I think he calls it the factor or the factor of favorability. You get a, something happen at the start to show you the way a little bit, even though you know there's going to be all sorts of stuff going on that's going to make it hard for you during that journey. At the start, was there anything for you that signposted you a little bit like, yeah, OK, this is something that I'm going to be involved in for quite a long time? When I look back in my life, and especially those early days were kind of, I, I wasn't going to be a professional rugby league player. I was going to be something else. It's pain. It's pain. I remember the pain of not, of realising that it wasn't going to happen. But instead of wallowing in that pain and distracting around that pain, moving away from it to become an SNC coach, I remember 
even before that, Ben, I was an odd carrier, believe it or not, in between playing rugby and being an SNC coach. And in the summer, it was okay. Everything's going quite well. You got your shirt off, you're buffed up, and you know, you're in a bit of quid, you're going out to the weekend. But in the winter, it's horrible. And I remember a six-month period where my mum would shout me in the morning to get up to go and odd carry, and my mates would be beeping outside. And I was crying in bed. I was thinking, what? Not that there's anything wrong with odd carrying, but it's like, what am I doing? It's like, I don't like this. Like, what am I doing with my life? And it was painful. And, and, and that pain kind of moved me forward. So I think whenever our values are kind of realigning and things are, sh- are changing, it's painful. It's like, you know, confusion always precedes new learning. You know, me and you have been raised in that type of environment. And you've got to go through that confusion to kind of go to the next level of learning. Well, the confusion is sometimes really, really painful. But I've started to recognize that now as, as a message from life that, hey, you know, maybe your, things are shifting here for you. Maybe even though you've loved this for the last few years, it's not for you anymore. And if you keep ignoring me, I'm, I'm still going to keep knocking on the door until you move away from me into something new, into a new venture. So pain is a catalyst for change, um, I think, Ben. But unfortunately, without that level of self-awareness, the pain be, can be perceived as something is wrong, I'm wrong, let's go to the pub and have 20 pints every night instead of, well, let's have a look at this. You know, I keep doing this. This, this pain's still here. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I can think of moving away from this. So so that was a long-winded answer, but pain. No, it's a great answer. And whilst you were talking about that, another thing that came into my mind was what you do now. And would you say that you're quite, you're a guide now? Yeah. So if, if there was somebody that was telling you a similar story to what you just said what advice and what help would you would give them to guide them to the next step because we're all a lot of us are in this moment where you're kind of not sure what's next and and there's pain there and then it goes and it comes back exactly as you said it and they need some guidance and some help to find their own self-awareness as well as all the other things what would you how would you lead on that i mean there's a million ways to go into this one of the first things that i would do is that um I would help them initially to neutralize what they're perceiving, you know, because whenever we think we're in pain, you know, there's a perception that whatever is happening in in life is wrong. So in the polarity of perception, if we're in pain, we can tend to mental pain and turbulence and confusion and all that and around career and relationships and should I go that way, should I go that way? The pain is associated with catastrophe. You know, we're catastrophizing we're looking at a one-sided view of reality. So one of the first things I would do in order to come back to a place of neutrality where they can make the, the most present decisions is go through this with them, go through what it is that they believe is causing the strife and the turbulence and, and acknowledge that and, and, you know, and, and allow them to validate that. But then ask them to park that for a minute and flip over to the other side. And a key question that I sometimes ask Ben is, in light of the person that you are eventually going to become and in light of your inspired vision of the future, what's good about this? It's like, and sometimes it takes a little bit more digging with strategic questions, but if they can analyze what's good about it, well, okay, that's good. It's giving me more time to do that. It's giving me more time to contemplate and get into my body. I've got more time to spend with the kids. Okay, I've got less money, but I've got, more time to actually be strategic around how I spend my money. It's like all of a sudden there's neutrality 
And um, my way of thinking is inspired by one of my mentors, Dr. John D. Martini. A lot of his work is based on the polarity perceptions. John's just such a fascinating human being. And when, when I'm in his presence, I'm inspired. And I love his whole kind of work around values. So the way John does it, it's more, and I work do it with my clients. I do a piece of work called identifying our inner GPS system, because we all have a different inner GPS system that dominates our thoughts, what we spend our money on, what we think about, who we like to connect with, what we like to talk about, what we don't like to talk about, where our goals lie, and, and, and so on and so on. And it's important to identify, you know, what, are, what, what is our inner GPS system? What are our hierarchy of drivers that are really important to us? Because then once we've got that clarity, and that's often the first step with my clients, we can then move on to talking about, okay, so these things are incredibly important to you. Let's create a deep purpose around, around this. Let's create some boundaries around this. Let's create your goals around this. And let's work on some actions to move towards them because anything else is a fantasy that will never come true. You know, I can say to you, I want to make a billion quid. But it's just a fantasy because when you dig into my drivers, money's not there. Money's a little bit lower down here. So I'll probably never make a billion quid, Ben. I'll probably do okay, but I probably will never be super rich. I might think because of my reputation and I should be, but the word should is a reflection of someone else's values, not my own. So getting clear on your drivers is really important. Yeah, if your driver, like say that for, for money, say it's lower down, the financial drivers are lower, but you also know that there's a value to what you do and that that you're under, undervaluing yourself perhaps. How do you then have a driver that that you want to lift up and you want to kind of almost force it up to get to, because, because you know that you're, that driver's not working all the time for your best benefit? Well, if you speak to John or you kind of get into the work of John, um, I mean, our this drivers. Is, this are, is John D. Martini. Yeah, our drivers are pretty much set, you know, and they're shaped by all our experiences and they're shaped by life. And our nervous system will tend to move towards something where we see the biggest void. The word fulfillment actually comes from fulfilling a void. You know, we fulfill a void. So if, if I got, if I have a heart attack, Ben, and I think there's a huge void though, if I don't get healthy, I'll die. All of a sudden, that pain might move health up to the top or if I've had if I've gone bankrupt in business because I've been a bit of a wheeler dealer and and, and I've, I, all of a sudden it's like oh my god if I don't sort this out you know so all of a sudden money goes to the top and I, and I take care of it a lot more um, but in terms of changing values I mean John does say you, you can change these in the drivers but you've really got to wipe, rewire the nervous system it's like if, if I want to move money to the top driver maybe because I've got three kids on the way, my mouse, she's going to have triplets, and I think, oh, my money's important. I've got to read a lot more about money. I've got to stop reading books on spirituality and performance and buy 20 books on, on, on money and wealth building. You know, if you go to Warren Buffett's library, you don't see books on health and physical performance. You see books on wealth building. So I've got to read. I've got to listen to podcasts. And John does a lot of uh, journaling work around changing values as well, where, for example, if he's working with me a client as a client, and I might say, well, I want to make money, number one, we might say, well, okay, come back to me in a month, but I want you to write a thousand benefits for you in your life of having X amount of money a year. 
And you've really got to dig into that. What else? How, that, how can it benefit me? How can it benefit the world? How can it benefit my family? And you've really got to, you've got to work hard at that. It is possible, but otherwise our drivers are quite unconscious. So as you moved on on your, on your journey as that 25 year old and then 26 year old, you got your first national job with Ireland. First S&C coach full-time with Ireland. How was that getting such a big job at such a young age? Yeah, the first full, full-time S&C coach that lived in Ireland. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing, um, but who did? It was the early days of professionalism in, in, in rugby. This is another thing I think I hear people when they're worried about making the leap to something else, something new, is that I, I haven't got the skills. I haven't got, I, I don't know half of what this job is supposed to be doing. I, I don't know. And it will put people off from going for it. Uh, I've said this before, but... but um, Richard Branson, I used to teach his kids and he said once to me, you know, like if there's a job you want to do, if you really want to do it, just, just say you can do it and you'll work it out. Did you know that at the start? Did we, did you, and did you have, did you have anxiety that first, that first few days that did you get physical anxiety? Of course. And, um, some of the work was in the office in Lansdowne, just outside Lansdowne Road. And some of the work was kind of training rugby players. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of fake it until you make it. 100% and a lot of people within the organization probably thought wow he's only 26 what what are we doing employing a 26 year old but I'd like to, I don't think I've, I don't think I've had a successful career because of my brains Ben I think I've had a successful career because of my character so I, I, I think um, I, I knew I could develop my skill set around learning and it never stops there's always a void there I never think I know enough and I don't perceive that as a negative I perceive that as a positive but I think I, I trusted my character in those early days. I trusted that I'd been involved in groups of men since the age of eight. So, you know, I'd, I'd been in that space. I was a bit older, but I was just comfortable. I'm, I'm comfortable around groups of men. It's my superpower. Those early days when you go into a new job, you're anxious, but you're, you're in it. Do you look for the signal, like those golden strands where you think you can make a big difference early to gain kind of people's trust? And do you ever look for that? I think in the early days, I probably didn't have awareness of that. And probably in the early days, I probably tried to just um, impress people early on with what I knew and what I could do. But what I know now, Ben, which I think is along the lines of what you're talking about, is you know, the first six months in any job is the most important. And it's not about cracking the whip and it's not about impressing people with your knowledge. It's about making connections. I remember doing some work with a guy of, of, about 10 years ago now and he'd, he'd been a, he'd been a number two for years at a pro, a pro club and he'd got a job as a number one and uh, immediately went in the full of mojo, full of energy, cracking the whip, sergeant major approach and they got rid of him after six months. There's, I mean, there's no effective communication change. There's no growth without rapport. So, so for me, you know, rapport and connection in the early days of a job is absolutely critical. And how do you manage that that seesaw between showing that you're competent and confident to do the job and being open to that vulnerability at the start of things? Because you can't be too vulnerable right at the beginning, but you need to show some of it to gain connection and trust. What I would, what I would always do in a, in, a, in a new venture or a new job, and this is the advice that I give to, to others as well, is I would go through the whole organisation initially the board and all the way down to the cleaners and identify within that uh, organization, you know, who are the influencers? 
who are the leaders and influencers and um and and that would be my first port of call to to make a energetic physical and verbal connection with these people and try somehow to establish rapport with them and when I talk about rapport I'm just talking about establish a, a common theme between the two of you that you can connect with I'm glad you said that because there's often these people at clubs that don't have senior positions but they're part of that tapestry and that influential structure there's a bloke at a work at AFC Wimbledon at the moment and there's a big shout out to Jeff and Jeff's does is a bit of a kit man does some team management stuff he also does jerk chicken on a Thursday for for all the players and they put their orders in and it take it, it takes him you know he 24 hours to marinate it and then he does it all and it's a real thing for him but the players love it and it also then gets them to understand Jeff they talk about other things they get deeper connections and it does affect like a positive tribe but if you if you if you got somebody to come in and have a look at the team they're not going to be talking to him probably a lot of people because they, they, they'll go right we've got to talk to the CEO we've got to talk to the the manager we've got to talk to the head of recruitment and and the bloke that's uh, doing all of those things well they're inconsequential but they're pretty valuable aren't they to that tribe i mean you found that out with the fiji gig didn't you with the sevens you found out after a period of time how valuable the physio was for example <laughs> william yeah 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 not only on in the medical room yeah no william william was was absolutely absolutely central to me i mean like um, a lot of those guys i wouldn't have survived really yeah you know if if they hadn't they hadn't helped me yeah, I did. I did a bit of work at Sale last year as well, and the kit man was an influence. So you know, a, a lot of the communication was in that room. You know, a coffee machine was in that room, and yeah, the influencers are not just the CEOs. I mean, some organisations, the influencers, influencers are not the CEOs. So I think it's important to identify the influencers. The other thing that's coming to me now, Ben, is the phenomena of of gaining rapport with people has to have the right intention, because otherwise it's I mean, in the realm of coaching, manipulation is a very interesting concept because, you know, we think I'm not a manipulator, but as coaches, we're always manipulating people in situations. Now, hopefully, if we've got the right intention as a mature, self-aware coach, we're manipulating people in circumstances so that they enjoy the job, the tribe is built, everybody's expressing the talents. If If we're blessed, we win tournaments. But, you know, unfortunately, without a level of self-awareness, coaches can use the skill of manipulation for the wrong reasons. When you start talking about that, I, I, I guess you always think about conversations you've had recently in work and, and other things, especially new organisations where you're trying to build up rapport. I've got no idea what I, whether I did this for the in the right way when I was a younger coach. But now, because I know my why so strongly is to help everybody, you know, to serve others, to get them to be at their best version, if I'm having a conversation with a head of SNC or a head of recruitment or a head coach, that's being created because I want them to get, I want to help them. Is that how you would all look at a lot of how you, how your conversations are as a guide? It is now. Yeah. I mean, on a personal level, it, I never used to realize this when I was younger. I thought service, what are you talking about? But now, it, yeah, my, my purpose is service, you know, service to others, a service to myself as well. It's a win. It has to be a win-win for me, but yeah, it's all about service. And when I'm working with clients, ultimately, if the coaches, I direct them into the, the purpose of service. But service to others is not the Mother Teresa syndrome. It's not service to others and I don't matter. 
you know, it, it, it's it's a win-win. I have to serve myself in order to show up and serve others in the best possible way. And I won't take a client on now, Ben, if it's not a win-win, especially with one-on-ones. If, if, if we do a clarity call and I think this guy's not for me, I'll just refer him to someone else because there's a, there's a feeling that actually I've not lived your life. I don't really resonate with your story. Why, why would I try and inspire you and mentor you down the path? Because I've not walked your path. So I'll, I'll, I'll refer him to someone else. Some of the insight that you gain on your journey will have come from the experiences that you've had because you then went from Ireland to Bolton Wanderers yeah. um, in, the, in the Premier League with um, Sam Allardyce as, as the manager. Yeah. And you were there for what just under a couple of seasons. Yeah. I mean, I've got an, an interesting story about Bolton Wanderers. I mean, they got promoted to the Premiership and I thought, wow. It's, I mean, I did want to stay in Ireland, to be honest, but um, they wouldn't give me an extra 10 grand. And Gat said, well, you're worth it. And if they don't want to give it, you go home. So, but going into Bolton Wonders was, was really, it was an interesting experience. I went for an interview, Ben, and um, I'd never met any of them. And I met the physio and he said, I really want you, physios are influential in football, as you know. And he said, I really want you in this organisation. We want something different. He said, I really think the gaffer will like you, Sam. He said, let me give you a few tips. He said, when you go in there with Sam and Phil Brown, be very direct and say fuck off a lot in your sentence. <laughs> Use the word fuck, use the word shit, and just be really direct. So I'm in there and I'm saying things like, well, you need to fucking you need to fucking toughen up. And I do it that way, and that's shit, and that's shit. And Sam looked to Tala, the physio, and he said, I fucking like Whitey. Get him in. <laughs> so um it was good for me because I was a lot more direct then than I than I am now. It's still my default to call on that direct way of coaching, but I, I can wear many other caps now because I've learned to do that. But at the time, it was really useful. Um, and I enjoyed it. But you mentioned earlier that um, it's important to have a sense of belonging. And I didn't have a massive sense of belonging because my life had been rugby, even though I like to play football. But the, the culture of football didn't give me the sense of belonging that I got from the culture of rugby at the time. So I ended up going to uh, London Wasp to reconnect with Warren Gatland, who'd moved from, from Ireland and... Um, and, and, and that definitely gave me the sense of belonging that my three years at Wasps were perhaps the deepest sense of belonging that I've ever felt in my life with, with a rugby team. Because you were massively successful in that period, literally won everything, right? Yeah. And also had a bit of an aura of what are they doing? You know, what, what's, what's going on over there? Exactly. There was a bit of arrogance, to be honest. We were like closing the doors and it's like... But back then, Ben, we, we did believe... It's also because I was a young coach, but we did believe that we were doing things different. And to be honest, we were because it was really early days in, in professional rugby. Everybody was just trying things to see how they worked. And we were the first team to say, do you know what? We've got 40 players here. Why have we only got one conditioning coach? Let's get four and let's get three interns from Bath. So when, when we've got the forwards in the gym, let's have six bodies supervising them and create a net where nobody can fall through. And, and, and from that net, we were able to specify and nines were doing different things and, and tens and not everybody was doing conditioning and top-ups were like individualised. And all of a sudden, the players felt, wow, this club cursed for me. Every day I've got someone on my back. I feel, I feel pushed and I feel love. And the culture was phenomenal because I believe we had, we had so many staff around the players who bought in but we did close the door because we didn't want people to understand that and then 
And then in a few years, every kind of club recognised the importance of having more people around the players. But a lot of that culture was built in the gym, I believe. Coming into the gym at Wasps for the players was like going into a nightclub. And when you've got Lawrence Delalio on your team, you know, they loved it, you know, and people like that. Um, it was such a fun place to be. Take somewhere like Wasps, where there was such a strong culture, a positive culture. Who set that? It was all of us, really. I mean, everybody had, had a role to play within that, you know. I guess at the helm, it would be me and Warren. But when you've got such a strong character like Sean Edwards, who's got so many ideas, you know, Sean comes into the mix. You've got some key characters in the playing squad. In the staff, I mean, you've got Paul Stridgen, who was the, who was one of my assistants, and there's so many characters like that, too many to mention, really. Do you think they all felt they had a sense of they could say things and their voice was heard and it would get actioned if people agreed? 100% because that's a key component of building culture, right, Ben? You know, it's, as employees, if you turn up and, number one, your, your personal values are aligned with what you think the company values are, it's a tick box. If within that environment you're allowed to express your talents and know what you're good at, if you think you're leading a, a little part of the organisation, it gives you a sense of confidence. And if you can openly speak and be listened to, that is the essence of human happiness and human sense of belonging for me those four different areas but um we had some really really ruthless meetings in those days i remember ruthless meetings where we felt so safe with each other there would be argument but then you just forget about it so um we, we did really feel safe with one another and without trying to do it i think it just came naturally to us i recognize now that there was a lot of positive feedback as well, Ben. Like Sean Edwards was so positive to us and the SNC team in meetings at dinners and Warren was, and we'd give them feedback. It was such a positive feedback culture. I guess it was kind of a flatline management without knowing it at the time. It was like a flatline leadership model because Gats is good at that. You know, Gats can stand up in front of the cameras and he can, as he does really well, he can he can portray a message of we are the best prepared team in world rugby and keep saying it and keep saying it so that everybody believes it. But he's also good at delegating and he gets he gets strong leaders around him. I mean, you look at Rob Harley was in the team, Matt Dawson was in the team, Lawrence was in the team, Craig Dow was in the team, Sean Edwards in the management team, I'm in the management team, Sean Paul's in the management team. And uh, so there's some stronger, strong characters there. Is that one of the things you like the most at, uh, from his leadership? Yeah, Warren does that as well because um, Warren's actually sh quite shy. You know, he's, um, he's all, there's, a, there's a level of humbleness with him around that as well. So he actually doesn't want to be the top dog, believe it or not. He actually, li he actually likes the kind of the flatland model, I guess, where, the, where there's definitely at least three really strong characters within that rugby department who can lead and who can be in front of the camera and, and can lead if he's not in work. I know for different organisations and cultures and at different times, leaders have to behave in different ways, but it's a good lesson, isn't it, for any future leader, anyone that that's leading at the moment to understand that, you know, by delegating and empowering, you are showing your power as a leader because, you know, you're confident with your your own, you're secure in that and what you can do enough to give others a voice. For sure. One of my other mentors, um, Ben, a guy called Dave Hadfield, uh, in New Zealand. 
Yeah, I know Dave. involved in New Zealand rugby for a long, long time now. Um, one of the things he said to me over the years is, um, and I think this is a conscious effort within the organisation, he says, if you go to any top professional rugby, league, rugby union team in New Zealand and you don't know anybody there, you just don't know anybody, you just go into the organisations, you might struggle to determine who the head coach is because of the way they communicate, because of, of, of the ownership they're given, because of who leads in different areas of the organisation. And I find that quite interesting that New Zealand rugby would maybe kind of go down that route of creating that kind of type of management approach in the, in the clubs. I, I, I love that going in because often it's the opposite, isn't it? When you go into a club, you know exactly who the boss is. Yeah, for sure. Especially, especially in England. Yeah, especially in especially in England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't take long. And you, you went from from Wasps to Leicester, and again, very successful there as well. One of the things that um, Austin Swain, um, who, who's, who's someone that I do you know I've um, referred to as someone that yeah mentor uh, for me. Um, he talks about different bags that you take for different roles that you have so that there'll be certain things that set are bags that will have the tools that you've that has helped you get where you've got to. There'll be other stuff that you just couldn't use that you used at Wasps and maybe, you know, you, you were going to be no good to you at Leicester and new bags. Do you see that in the journey that you've had? Because from there, you obviously also had 2005 and 2009 British and Irish Lions tours as well. Very different tours but at the very highest level, working with the very best rugby players in the world. Is there some stuff that you do the same? And are, there, are you aware of the different skill sets that you need to kind of push and pull on? There'll always be a bias. You know, as a coach, you've always got a bias, haven't you, Ben? In the, in the world of S&C, you know, if you get a job tomorrow, Ben, as a head coach and you employ an S&C coach that's been a speed coach, you'll do a lot of speed work. If you employ someone with a wrestling background, you want to do a lot of combat. So there's always a bias, and that bias is, is, is important because it's where we can, we can show efficiency and, and proficiency. So that's always there. And also the two other things. The first thing is, as I've got older, and, and we're talking about rugby here, so I'm relating it to kind of rugby organisations. And what I've realised more and more and more and more and more and more is that I can only talk from an S&C coach's background really is extracting and determining the vision of the head coach and the key influence is around him is step one. It's number one. It's absolutely critical. And the top coaches will know that, but some of them might not. So it's, it, it's, it's been critical for me to learn communication skills, to extract from the top, like what is it exactly that we're, we're moving towards here? You know, how do you want to play? You know, what might that look like in a year, two years? How do you want the team to behave? What medical, what mental persona do you want this team to portray? How does that weave into the game plan? Let's drop down now. How does that affect the way we train? What is our gym work like? What is it not like? What do you not want? How does the injury prevention? So that is absolutely critical for all coaches and practitioners. You must get to the gaffer and his, his team around him and determine like what is the vision and feed into that and express your part of that and get clear on that and then drop to how we actually build and create that vision moving forwards. But the third piece in relation to um, working with different organisations is it's the people piece really, Ben. So I guess what I've had to learn because I wasn't good at it, I used to think I was, but I wasn't, is 
number one, self-awareness. And I've done a lot of work around who I am, who I'm not, what is, what is important to me, what I love, what I'm grateful for in my life, what are my talents, what are my blind spots, what's my personal vision, what's my personal why, how do I lead when I'm on, on it, how do I lead when my shadow comes out. I've had to do a lot of work on that. But I've also had to do a lot of work around interpersonal skills and communication and have the skill set to have a different way of connecting with one guy to another guy to another guy to another guy. And that's probably the biggest area of growth for me that I'm sharing now with coaches. But my journey in that realm, which never stops, came from a void, Ben. It came from a void. It was an unconscious void at the time, but when I left, it was conscious. So when I was in Wales... I have a, the only regret I've got in Wales, Ben, was that I spent two years trying to get rid of um, the physios. And one of them in particular is a wonderful man. But at the time, as, as a young conditioning coach, a young head of performance, my ego was so big. And I didn't, I thought everybody saw the world through my filters. And I thought everybody got up at five in the morning and was in the gym at six. I thought everybody constantly did CPD and travel to different trainers and organizations and everybody had to be direct. And unfortunately there was a physio Mark and he was the opposite to me, but I didn't see it as a complimentary opposite. I saw it as not up to my standards. And I spent two years wanting to get rid of him and it even went to HR sometimes. And, and, but looking back now, what I realized is that his character, persona, skill set was everything that I didn't have and I wanted or I'd suppressed growing up. He was slow and methodical. He moved slowly. He was patient, Ben. He was unbelievably empathic and he could feel others and he made slow decisions. You know, he was careful, which, which I wasn't. If only now, I, well, Thankful. I'm glad that it happened because it's moving into a realm of learning about communication. But now I can recognize that and I can use that type of person wisely so it can, it can, it can be natural and it can express his strengths. And what I've also done, Ben, in my own personal work, I've actually owned those parts of me now. I'm not always fast and dynamic. I'm not, I'm not always a million miles an hour. I can sometimes were that empathic side. I can slow down and my voice can get slow and I can I know how to connect with that type of person. And I know how to connect with a, a dynamic type of fire type as well. So that area, Ben, has been absolutely fascinating for me. I can feel it. Just like we, this is an audio show, so you won't get to see the video of Craig, but his, his face lit up when he talked about about that and that story and one of the other moments of movement for you was in 2009 when you went to Thailand for a month around that Wales period right yeah I mean that was a that, that was the most significant month of my life Ben because it I spoke about this before on different platforms and um in a nutshell I've been a workaholic for whatever reasons wanting to get to the top which is a journey I think as men we do need to get through it is about us for a while. We have to go through the selfish phase. And, um, but I'd never stopped, Ben. I'd never, ever, ever stopped. And I'm plunked into a yoga retreat with my ex-wife. I didn't mean I want to go, but I was fascinated a little bit because I hadn't told anybody, Ben, but I'd, over the kind of years when I was at Wasps and Leicester and Wales, 
I read a lot about Buddhism and meditation, a lot, an awful lot. Some of the books are behind me on the bottom row, and but I didn't really tell anybody. So I had an interest in I had an interest in what was beyond this kind of current reality that we all kind of believe exists in this personality, but I never got into it. So the retreat was in Thailand and I went and it was quite possibly the most significant month of my life. It really was in that short space of time. You know, it, it was so intense. I was forced to keep still. I was forced to try and let go. I was forced to train my mind to be quiet. I was forced to move in postures that I, I weren't used to. I was forced to move in different ways that I weren't used to, which brought stuff up. I was so used to moving in linear ways. And, um, and there's a lot of purification happened, not only through the yoga and the meditation and the breathing, but also through welcoming silence and also eating cleanly as well. It was a, a big purification journey for me, really. And um, I, I touched, I'm going to use the word touch because that obviously relates to feeling. I'd been such an avid thinker and I associated, as I'm sure you did, leadership with thinking because that, that's what the books tell us, right, Ben? You know, yeah. that, that, that to be a leader, you've got to be a good thinker, which is only now 50% of the equation. But I started to feel things and I thought, wow, I've never felt this before. And, um, and some of that, those feelings were associated with potential and happiness and, and things that, and, and the good stuff that I thought, wow, there's more to life life can be much more happier than what I've, I've experienced. But also the polarity of that, the feelings came with, where's the anger coming from? Where's that sadness coming from? Why am I crying when I think about and my dad not being around an awful lot and my mum being dominant and, whoa, it's kind of, it opened, as we say, a whole can of worms. But that can of worms, I became fascinated with that can of worms then because I realised that it was all potential, really, at the end of the day. And uh, so that month, it kind of propelled a really intense search of self-discovery for me. And I left Thailand and um, I knew when I got back in the Welch job that I wasn't going to last very long because my values have just changed so much in the space of one month. Things that were important to me before were not important now. And I'm sat on my desk in, in the office of the Welch Physical Performance Department with physios and staff. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? What are they talking about? This doesn't have any meaning anymore. What's rugby about? What is my purpose? And um, so I thought it was a midlife crisis, but it wasn't. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was a knock on the door to feel more potential and feel more of things that I'd repressed growing up. So I ended up leaving a year later, just before the World Cup, which Warren wasn't happy with. And then we actually went back to Thailand and then intensive yoga study began and, and yoga teacher training began and meditation teacher training and intense retreats began. And that's kind of uh, when I really started to fill up my toolbox with a lot more. And in a nutshell, I'd filled up my toolbox so much with thinking, the tools of thinking. And, and now, it, almost looking back over the last 14, 15 years, a lot of my journey of learning has been embodied learning where I'm actually learning how to feel again and, and how to breathe again and how to use my body again and the importance of my posture and the importance of being present in my body when I'm with clients. So it's been interesting looking at my coaching journey too, Ben, because I feel like now more than ever, even on Zoom, I'm, I'm able to really hold space for clients and be totally present with them and, and, and not be lost in, in my mind and 
I think I, I believe that's because I've learned how to feel again and, and, I've, and, I've, and I've accessed my feelings again. And, and I think when we access feelings which live in the body, they don't live in the mind, then we have, we have a greater capacity to be compassionate. I find these embodied practices that I've been on are really helping me to connect more with people, which is really the greatest foundation of coaching, I would say. When our listeners here on, on this segment, I'm sure some of them will think, wow, that, that just feels, that just sounds really overwhelming. Did you feel that or did you feel the opposite of it? It was both, Ben. I mean, it, it was it was overwhelming in a sense of, you know, some of the retreats that I've been on, like I've touched parts of bliss, really, that I never thought existed. I remember being on a meditation retreat in Thailand and we did this Buddhist practice where you imagine somebody sat in front of you and you, you take on the suffering. And I imagine my mother and you emit love out to that person. And I remember it was like somebody ripped open the doors to my heart and I thought I was going to get, I was lost. It was a real kind of in-body, but also out-of-body experience. Um, but there's also been times where I've, I've kind of touched my kind of dark, shadowy side, if you like, as well. And where did that come from and how to process that? And, you know, the, 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 there are tears around not kind of being raised in the perfect way. And, and But also, without getting too deep, you know, we all carry grief. And it's not always our own grief, Ben. There is a grief of humanity. We used to live in communities where everything was taken care of us. We were mothered properly. We were fathered properly. Now we're not. We're so far away from that that there's a lot of grief in all of us. And, and I believe that in all of our healing journey, at some point, we have to kind of touch that. And by touching it, it may, it, in the vocation that I choose in life, like you, coach, mentor, it's important for me to touch those raw parts of myself because it enables me to connect deeper with someone. I'm not just doing it for myself anymore. I'm, I'm doing it because I want to be a better coach. And that was the gateway to to the beginning of, of what you do and, and how you think now, right? 100% because it opened me up to deeper parts of myself and it opened me up to life beyond my ego and my measly troubles and it kind of I guess it, I guess it shifted the emphasis on me 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 to me in the world and how I can serve others and how I can help people and how I can share my skills and ultimately how I can die having emptied my suitcase some of those skills that you that you start to learn well there's a there's a few things really for me because there must have been a moment and that that start that yoga retreat and I, I've been the same on different meditation stuff where you're just like I don't want to be here this is useless I've got yeah fidgety thinking about other things other more important stuff to do how did that penny drop in that moment well the teachings helped Ben because you know the teachings are along the lines of your ego will tell you that it's not for you the ego just wants to have a nice life you know and um, but when I kind of learn about the ego, you learn about states of consciousness and and so on and so on. You realize that ultimately it's it's meditation is a practice. I mean, ultimately, if you speak to a, a really skillful meditation teacher or a Buddhist monk or whatever, it's not a practice. It's a total dissolution. It's neutrality. It's a state of being. It's a state of allowing life to move and come through without any resistance. But it requires a practice. You know, because we, we've been learned to identify with the persona, identify with the ego, identify with, with the mental constructs. And it is a practice of learning to be a witness to the phenomena of life. You know, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the, the temperature changes in the body and, and learn to kind of learn to allow those to move through you because we react and we take things personally. 
So it's a practice. It's a key, key practice. And I still see some of my clients saying meditation is not for me. It, well, it's a practice. But meditation isn't also sitting on a cushion bed, you know. It's whatever can allow you to drop into that state of, of witnessing without trying to change anything. It might be looking at a fire. It might be stroking your dog. It might be walking. It might be focusing on the way your feet hit the ground. It might be sitting on a cushion. It might be movement. I, I get that totally. And so that journey from, I'm, I'm not I'm trying to compress things, but 2009 and there was... Uh, I wouldn't mind going just to before those six months with Uruguay in 2011 for the Rugby World Cup in Japan, where Uruguay had that famous victory against Fiji. But what I'm looking at really is that in between those, you know, you, you look a decade earlier when you're you're at Wasps and there and how you would have prepared the team, how you would have contributed to preparing a team. And now you, you know, you've got 500 hours yoga meditation teacher, NLP master practitioner, hypnotherapist. Spectrum emotional coach, life coach, shadow work facilitator, D Martini method facilitator. There's a lot of a lot of learning that you've. I haven't got any you. kids, Ben, so I've got a child. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me feel that that um, those skills that then you put into practice in Uruguay was very different from the ones that you had to create a great culture in Wasps, because it was more around the the human being. Would that be right? For sure. Um, I mean, my work with Uruguay has been ongoing on and off for a number of years now. Um, before the last World Cup, it was it was really significant because I got the chance to try things and experiment with things that I hadn't done before with a rugby team. And there was fear in that, but there was also potential as well. Um, and so, I mean, I was part of the SNC team. And I was writing programs and I was part of the sessions and I was training people, but... It was just an incredible opportunity for me to, to, and it wasn't even my remit, it's just my experience enabled me to bring a set of skills and methods to build a bulletproof level of self-belief. So within the pre-season period, we actually did a, a lot of circle work in little circles, in big circles. You know, Classically, we'd call it team building, which was really, really significant. But the reason it was so significant, I believe, is because everything I did with them, I had done myself. So I had sat in my own circles of men and I had sat and I had spoke about what I was grateful for in life, what I was not grateful for, who I'm thankful for, my mentors, who they've been, what I want in my life, what stops me and so on and so on. And I'd, I'd done it and I'd been vulnerable myself and I'd experienced the own benefits for myself, Ben, in my life. Uh, and I wanted to share that with the team because I thought, wow, imagine doing this with a rugby team. And some of the things I do in retreat, I thought, I want to bring that in as well. But it's a challenge, Ben, because I remember putting our first team building session, which was two hours into the schedule on week one of like a 12-week pre-season. And I'm in the coaching room and the coaching staff are saying to me, Craig, are you sure about this? This group of players, this culture, they're not, I don't think they're going to open up. You might be disappointed. Now, I knew, Ben, the coaches were projecting their own fears onto that, right? I thought, I said, just trust me. Anyway, we, we do, I think the first session was simply everybody splitting into groups and sharing what they're grateful for in life and who do they have to thank in rugby for where they are today. And there was tears of emotion and gratitude and it's like, boom, the first nails were put into the ship 
Uh, and afterwards, it was like, from the coaches, like, oh, my God, Craig, that was incredible. I've never seen that before. Players, when we're doing the next one. And then we just kept doing sessions like that on different themes, Ben. And at the end, towards the end of those pieces of work, we did a session on um, just on vision and purpose. And um, the players were given a task to do where they had to come up with a mantra that encapsulated all the work we'd done in pre-season and, and before that and, and related to the history of, of Uruguay, they came up with, with a mantra, shock the world. Like They couldn't really say, uh, we want to beat Fiji, we want to beat Georgia. They couldn't say that as a nation like Uruguay. It wasn't realistic. But they came up with a mantra, shock the world, and we put it on a massive PVC and we took it everywhere with us. And, and in every single hotel in the World Cup campaign, before the just after the little monitoring that they did, they'd, they'd see this mantra and then they'd pass it and then they'd have to go in a little room and we'd do a little uh, meditative practice and then they'd, they'd eat breakfast. We'd even put it into the gym and we'd move it around so they didn't get bored because you know what the mind's like, it can get fixed and lose, be diluted. So we'd move it around. Sometimes it would just be outside the toilet in front of the lift. So when they opened the lift, they'd see it. We, we, we strategically moved it around a lot. So it was, it was so ingrained in them, um, this self-belief, this embodied self-belief that somehow we're going to shut the world. And um, all that came out in the Fiji game. That might never happen again, but it, 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 was, it was a result of, of years and years of, of a journey, really. And that story with Uruguay brings me to the end of part one and also brings up in my head two thoughts. The first is that with nearly every journey you embark on, the progress and the results are rarely rapid and instant. Yet people desire that immediacy. Speaking to someone this week that's been doing a lot of groundbreaking work around cohesion and teamwork for a long time and analysed huge amounts of data around it. Well, he reckons that of all the football managers that get sacked, about 90% of those sackings don't actually improve the organisation. That is actually mental. People waste growth opportunities and finances and time because of decision-making based on flawed principles. Craig uses his huge array of tools available to him to find improvements, solutions and successes. Now, he is world-class at that and in a very small group of practitioners that can make real and lasting improvements over time. My second point We all have different tools available to us. And again, it's so rare that one size fits all. You drop them in when you feel that it's appropriate and when often your gut tells you to. We talk about the power and science of relying on your gut in part two, but it's also one of the joys of coaching and leading and being part of contributing to a successful culture. Performance is not like a trained timetable. Everything at a certain time, in a certain place, going to a certain destination. No, how you interpret what you feel and see and hear is everything. So to me, it makes sense to broaden your learning and experiences to maximize the tools you have at your disposal, as well as involve others that can help you too. Now in part two, we speak about Craig's organization, Men Without Masks, and cover topics such as transcendental meditation, embodied learning, centering, flow states, the role of breath, sound, touch and movement, hypnotherapy, as well as rounding it all off with some takeaways for you, the listener. Craig and I mentioned a ton of resources in this show, 
And I'll reference and link all of them and more in the show notes that are going to be available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast. And in the show descriptions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. Keep hitting us up with the Apple reviews and ratings. I'd love to hear from all of you. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.